to Ephesians chapter 5 for our scripture reading. This passage also serve as the text for our message today. Ephesians 5, I'm going to read verses 25 through 33. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25, follow along in your copy of Scripture as we read with the 25th verse, beginning with the 25th verse. Paul has been addressed, had addressed wives in verses 22, 3, and 4, and now he turns to husbands. Husbands, he says, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. A brief prayer. Take, O Lord, this passage we've read and uh, burn it into our hearts, the truth, the importance of it, for our lives as husbands and men, for the sake of our families. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I suggested a couple of weeks ago that one of the many reasons for our crumbling society is the crumbling of the American family. And that the family is in crisis is very evident just by simp simply looking at statistics at the way things are. Marriage itself, it is, is at a historic low. Fewer, fewer people are getting married today in relation to the total population and percentage of the total population than has ever been the case in American history as it's been recorded. And it's been recorded for uh, like 140 years, I think. So on the one hand, the marriage rates are at an all-time low, and the cohabitation rates are at an all-time high. It is considered, almost considered normal and expected that a couple will live together before they ever get married, if indeed they do get married. And then single-parent households. Single-parent households. One in four children in our country is growing up in a single-parent household. It is twice as... Uh, twice as common among Latino households, and it is three times that rate in African-American families. And that doesn't even, that, uh, that uh, single-parent household situation doesn't even factor in uh, the number of abortions, that is, these cohabitation relationships or hookup relationships that end up in a pregnancy and nobody wants to be bothered with a kid, so let's just get rid of that hunk of flesh is the attitude. So just looking at those statistics, you cannot help but realize that there is a crisis in terms of the traditional 
family. And by traditional, I also mean biblical family. And at the root of this, at the root of much of this failure, has to be the failure of men to submit to their basic responsibility to love their wives. Why are marriages at such a, such a low rate? Why are the marriage rates so low? It's because too many young men don't know how to love a woman. That's one of the good reasons. Too many young men don't know how to love a woman. They don't want to give up their quote-unquote freedom. They don't want to be tied down to one person. They want to live their life the way they want to live it. They don't want to have to compromise their space with somebody else. Why is cohabitation so high? Same reason, because too many men don't really know how to love the woman that they're living with. They want the physical benefits of living together. They want the financial benefits that they think go along with that, but they don't want any of the commitment that is involved in a marriage relationship. And, it, and in, that, in that selfish uh, outlook on things, they're willing to put the woman at risk. What if she gets pregnant? Oh, well, she can always just go get an abortion. Or, I don't want to have to deal with a kid. I'll let her deal with the kid and let her go on her way. He puts the woman at risk with the possibility of a pregnancy. He puts the, and, and if that were to come, and as it most of the time occurs that they end up splitting up, he puts her at the risk of poverty. Why... Why do so many children live without an intact two-parent household? It's because too many young men don't know how to love a woman. They get a woman pregnant, and they leave her holding the bag. You could summarize all of this with one word, selfishness. Selfishness. Now, when it comes to the Christian and the Christian man, and his, can I use the term romantic, and I'll put that in quotes so you get an idea of what I'm talking about, the area that I'm talking about. When it comes to the Christian man's romantic relationship to a woman, he has one fundamental responsibility to which he must submit. He is to love that woman in the context of marriage. Now, in the larger context of today's passage, we read uh, chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. We, we need to understand where that sits in the book of Ephesians. Remember the book of Ephesians, this letter to the church at Ephesus, the first half of the letter is doctrinal in, in its emphasis. It's got a lot of application in that part, but it's primarily doctrinal in its emphasis. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Paul flips. He, I mean, he goes on a transition. He transitions from the doctrinal to the applicational. And, and at that point, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation, the calling wherewith you were called. In other words, at that transition point, Paul challenges us as Christians to walk worthy of that calling as Christians. And so for the rest of this book, the rest of this letter, he's going to tell us what that involves. What, is it, what does it mean to walk worthy? And he goes through several different things. We've already looked at those in chapter 4 and first part of chapter 5. But then when he gets to chapter 5, verse 18, 
through chapter 6, verse 9, the, the focus of that section has to do with submission, has to do with submission. So in verses 18 through 21, he talks about the mutual submission that is incumbent upon us as part of the local church. There needs to be mutual submission in the local church, and he summarizes that in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And then in verses 22 through the end of the chapter, chapter 5, he talks about marital submission. There is some submission that has to take place on both the part of the husband and the wife. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, he deals with familial or family submission, the responsibility of children in, in this area of submission and fathers as well. And then he rounds out this section on submission in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6, uh, dealing with, shall we call it, commercial submission, the responsibility of, uh, in the workplace, submission in the workplace. But this morning, I want to zero in on that responsibility that in the marriage relationship that men have for a married Christian man to walk worthy of his calling as a Christian, he must submit to the responsibility to love his wife. Now, this responsibility is clearly placed on our shoulders. We see this in three different verses at the beginning of them, verses 25, 28, and 33. You see it repeated. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25. Verse 28, so ought men to love their wives. And then verse 33, so every one of you in particular, so love his wife. Now, that responsibility, I think, in the culture at large is given lip service, isn't it? I mean, you know, what marriage, secular or sacred, does, doesn't include the statement on the part of the husband or the, the, the groom to the bride, I love you, and vice versa. And in the, um, the expressions of affection in the culture, the idea of love is a very common thing. Uh, think, for example, of uh, often expressed in the songs of the popular songs of the culture. I uh, think of the song that Frank Sinatra sang several decades ago entitled Love and Marriage. Maybe you've never heard that song. Some of you old-timers, I'm sure, have, even if you wouldn't admit it. But it goes like this. Love and marriage, love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. This I'll tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Love and marriage, love and marriage, it's an institute you can't disparage. Ask the local gentry, and they will say it's elementary. Try, try, try to separate them. It's an illusion. Try, 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 and you will only come to this conclusion. Love and marriage, love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. Dad was told by mother, you can't have one without the other. Now, there's truth in that, isn't there? We'll say more about that nature of love in a minute, but at least in this particular song, the responsibility of love being coupled to marriage is given lip service. Now, when Paul wrote this, this responsibility to 
for husbands to love their wives would have been a startling thing to say, especially in the, uh, especially in the cultural context of his day. Nowhere would it be told for husbands to love their wives, not in the first century Roman culture. They, they are to take care of them. They are to make sure that they do their, they carry, they, their wives, carry out their responsibilities. I mean, Paul just told wives to submit yourselves to your husband. And so the first century Roman citizen would have expected him to follow that up with, husbands, make sure she does. Make sure she submits to you. Don't let her get rebellious now. That's not what he says. He says, love her. Love her. Now, today's culture, it would bristle at the idea that the first, uh, the, the first century culture would have expected, the idea of rule over her, dominate her. No, today's culture calls for rather a sort of domestic partnership where the love thing is, is, is a reciprocated thing whereby if the other party doesn't no longer loves me, then I'm no longer going to stay married to that one that I no longer love. So, for example, in another cultural pop song from back in the 60s, the song I'm a Believer, the, uh, the songwriter said something like, uh, I, thought, I thought love was more or less a giving thing. But then he went on to say, but it seems the more I gave, the less I got. And so he turned his back on love altogether until some other woman came along, and so now he's a believer. But that, but that idea, that idea that, well, you know, I gave and gave and gave in this loving relationship, but I'm not getting, getting, getting in return. So the, the contemporary culture in its concept of love, it's, it's a it's a reciprocating partnership kind of thing. So this responsibility that Paul is placing on a, the shoulders of us as Christian men is a startling thing, and it's startling when it's understood what he's asking us to do, he's calling upon us to do. What is the nature of the love in the song Love and Marriage? Well, it sounds like it's a good thing that he's saying here, and it sounds like it's a truism, but what kind of love is he talking about? Remember, Frank Sinatra made this popular. Do you know how many wives Frank Sinatra had? Four. Four. Four different wives. I think an insight into the kind of love that he's talking about is that love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage as dad was told by mother. In other words, mother was telling dad, you want the benefits of marriage, then you have to show me the affection, show me the love. I'm telling you, if you want from me, you got to give to me. That kind of an aspect of love. You can't have the marriage without the affectionate love dad. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? But what kind of love is Paul calling for? The kind of love that Paul is calling for is a kind of love that does not seek self-satisfaction. 
It's what, it's what he described in First, uh, First Corinthians 13, right? I mean, you have that love chapter, and there's several different aspects of description there. And one of the things he said is that it is not, it does not seek her own. This, this biblical love, this agape love that we as husbands are to have for our wives is not a kind of love that seeks its own. So this would be foreign. Uh, what, what Paul's calling for is, is, is contrary to, I should say, the I'm a believer kind of love. It seems the more I gave, the less I got. So I'm turning my back on this thing called love. No, the idea of giving, of selfless giving, is at the very heart of this kind of love. And he gives without any thought of getting in return. The kind of love Paul is talking about is not a love that is merely an affection that seeks a reciprocating affection. It's not an affection that answers affection. In other words, I will love you insofar as you love me. I will express affection toward you as long as you express affection toward me, as in, uh, as in the uh, I'm a believer thing as well. No, the, the kind of love that Paul is talking about is a totally unselfish love. It's an unselfish love. It's a love that strives for the highest good of the one loved. I think the best succinct description of this love that Paul calls upon us as husbands to have for our wives was written by a commentator named Francis Folks. Listen, it's a, it's a, uh, somewhat of a lengthy description, but, but listen carefully because there's so much in this paragraph that is descriptive of what he's calling us to do as men, as husbands. He says, this love means not only a practical concern for the welfare of the other. Now, it does concern, uh, it, does, it does involve a practical concern for the welfare of the other, but not only that, it calls for a continual readiness to subordinate one's own pleasure and advantage for the benefit of the other. It implies patience and kindness, humility and courtesy, trust and support. This love means that one is eager to understand what the needs and interests of the other are, and will do everything in his power to supply those needs and further those interests. Now, that was a mouthful, but it's, it's exactly what Paul is talking about, pra being practically concerned for the welfare of the other person with a continual readiness to subordinate my own pleasure, my own desires, and my own advantage for the benefit of the one loved. I am patient and kind, humble, courteous, trusting, and supporting. With this kind of love, I'm eager to understand the needs and interests of my wife and I will do everything in my power to supply those needs and to further 
those interests. Now, this is the kind of love that is not very well understood in the pop culture, the songs of the monkeys or Frank Sinatra. But this is the kind of love that God is calling us as husbands to demonstrate for our wives. And Jesus provides the pattern for that love, for that responsibility that we have. And this is Paul's argument in verses 25 through 27. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. So, okay, how am I to do this? Well, I look to Christ. How did Jesus love the church? Let me suggest four words to describe that love. Love your wife, first of all, intentionally. Intentionally. Christ loved and gave. Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. In other words, Jesus saw the need of, these, uh, uh, of us as fallen, sinful people. He saw the need, Jesus did, and he took the initiative to meet that need. Notice, he was not asked. He was not cajoled. He was not begged. He was not browbeaten. He was not nagged. He saw the need, and he took the initiative to meet the need. I fully admit, gentlemen, that one of our problems is hmm, cataracts, right? We've got some cataracts over our eyes, and we don't always see very clearly the need. But that goes back to what our, um, our writer who gave us that description of this love wrote when he said it means that we are eager to understand what the needs and those interests are. We take an active interest in trying to find out what are those needs. Love your wife intentionally. Secondly, love your wife sacrificially. Jesus gave up himself, literally, is what that says. He gave up himself for the church. What did this cost him? What was the depth of his sacrifice? Where do you, where do you look to get, really get a sense of the depth of the sacrifice? Now, you can look at the gospel accounts of the cross, of the crucifixion, and you can see the nature of the sacrifice, right? Okay? He gave his body to be broken. It was beaten. was abused the crown of thorns, the whip, the scourging. Yes, you can see all of that. You can see the nature of his sacrifice, what his sacrifice was like. But how deeply did that sacrifice affect him personally as the God-man? Where do you go to see the depth of that sacrifice? Go to the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus leaves his disciples behind and he goes deeper into the garden and he falls down on his knees and he cries out to his father, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times he prayed that. And he prayed with such intensity and such earnestness that great drops like of blood 
fell from his brow. Now, what that tells you is how deeply this sacrifice cost him. He expressed it again on the cross when he quoted that psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The thing of it is, he still sacrificed in spite of the cost. And, and that, that sacrifice serves as a model for us as husbands. Love your wife sacrificially. Then thirdly, love your wife purposefully. Purposefully. Look at verse 27. Here's the purpose that Jesus gave himself for the church. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So the purpose for Jesus' sacrifice in behalf of the church was that he might eventually present that church to himself, a glorious church with no spot or wrinkle, nothing polluting in it whatsoever. It would be holy and without blemish. That's the, that's the ultimate purpose. That's the ultimate purpose. That was the goal that Jesus had in mind for the church. That was the goal that demanded that self-sacrificial love that he expressed in the garden and on the cross. Now, we're not called to do what Jesus did. I mean, you and I, as husbands, we cannot, we cannot present our wives in this particular way. I think the point that, that Paul is making here is that as we love our wives, as we en engage in this self-sacrificial, intentional love for our wives, we do so with a noble purpose. We do so with a purpose behind our self-sacrificial giving that is for her, her sake, for her benefit. See, that's the idea. Now, as a, as a spiritual leader in the home, certainly there are things we do to encourage spiritual growth and all the rest of that. I'm not minimizing that, and I'm not saying this doesn't apply at all to that. But what I'm saying is the emphasis, the focus is that Jesus gave himself intentionally and sacrificially and purposefully for the church. Husbands, love your wives like this. Purposefully. Purposefully. So, for example... I want my wife to thrive. I don't want her to merely exist and to go through life next to me, and that's about it. Again, I, I think of, um, I'm reading uh, Chernow's biography of Ulysses Grant, and in the early pages of his biography, he talks about uh, Grant's childhood and his family growing up, and his his dad was uh, of the, the mold of the authoritarian, domineering, my way or the highway kind of a guy. And his wife, Grant's mother, Ulysses Grant's mother, was a quiet, um, you could almost see, see her as being a beaten down 
kind of a woman that knew she better not say anything or do anything that was out of line. She just coexisted as the wife of Ulysses' father. Not any real thriving going on in her life. This is not what we as husbands want for our wives, not Christian husbands. We want our wives to thrive. Let me give you a very practical example of this, and I totally failed in it yesterday. I, I had thought earlier, I need to do this, and then I completely failed at it. But we had a conversation um, Friday, I think it was, Chris and I had a conversation at lunch, and um, uh, we, we, were talking about, we were talking about going um, somewhere where we would take two separate cars, and, um, and I, I was going to go on a backpacking trip, and, and we'd spend a night, and then we'd spend a night someplace, and then I would leave the next morning from that location to go on my backpacking trip, take the one car, you know, just a few miles away to start that backpacking trip, and then she'd take the other car and come home. So we would at least have that, that, tri that trip that night together and so forth, and then I'd go off on my, my little excursion for a few days. And, and then she said something like, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Scott and Sarah will be going along on this uh, little outing, and, and I can just ride home with them. I said, oh, no, you need to spend the, you, you, you need to spend the night with me. Don't you want to spend the night with me? You know, that kind of thing. She said, well, it's just, I don't, I don't want to drive home alone. I mean, I just, the idea, I just, driving home alone, you know? And then I made a wisecrack about, you know, her mom. Not a, not a particularly smart thing to do, guys. But the thing is, her... And, and her mom's probably watching this right now on live stream. Um, but her mom doesn't go anywhere. She doesn't drive anywhere, and she just you know, she won't she won't she won't do that. I said, look, you don't want to be like that. You know, I'm dead and gone. Don't you be sitting around the house because you don't want to go anywhere. You want to be able to get in the car and drive and go. And then she said, well, Daryl, my dad's name, you do all the driving. Maybe if, I, maybe if you didn't do all the driving and you let me drive, then uh, I, I wouldn't feel so intimidated. I'd say, okay, touche. You got a point. So yesterday, we, we, we took a trip over to, uh, to Clinton to go to Home Depot so we could get something without worrying. <laughs> anyway, and when we thought about that trip, I said to myself, I need to remember to let Chris just drive to Clinton and do this. And then out of habit, you know, we got in the car. I'm driving the car. I, di I didn't think another thing about it. didn't even think another thing about it until I was reviewing my message, and I thought, you numbskull, that would have been a wonderful illustration about how I wanted my wife to thrive. And here I failed. Okay, well, maybe that's a good enough illustration to make the point that we need to love our wives purposefully. And then here's our fourth word. Love your wife practically. Practically. So in verse 26, to get to the purpose, to fulfill the purpose. To, okay, I want my wife to thrive. How do I, what do I need to do to help my wife thrive? Well, I need to let her get behind the wheel, even when I'm going to ride in the passenger seat, so that she feels more comfortable driving uh, in places that are unfamiliar to her. 
Uh, that's the practical thing, right? Well, what did Jesus do to fulfill the purpose? Verse, 20, uh, verse 26, He gave Himself for it that He might sanctify it, He might set the church apart and cleanse the church by the washing of water by the Word. So Jesus had, the, Jesus had a purpose behind the sacrifice. The purpose was to present the church uh, holy and without blemish before Him, ultimately, right? Verse 27, a glorious church. But to get there, to reach that purpose, to fulfill that purpose, He needed to set the church apart. He needs to be cleansing the church and sanctifying it and washing it with the water of the Word. He's got very practical steps that he's taking to fulfill that purpose. Jesus provides a pattern for the fulfilling of our responsibility, but so does nature. Nature also provides a pattern. Verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, he says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. Nature provides us with a pattern for fulfilling this responsibility to love our wives. How so? By the way, remember, Leviticus 19.18 says you, says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And your wife, men, your wife is your closest neighbor. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your wife as yourself. Now, the loving of self here that Paul is talking about and that God is talking about in the book of Leviticus is not a, a selfish, narcissistic kind of love. He's talking about the, the natural self-care that goes into, into any, human, any normal human being's uh, existence. You take care of your body, you, you feed it, you clothe it, you make sure it has what it needs, you protect it as much as you possibly can. That's what he's talking about. It's a very natural thing. So in the, in the natural kind of love her as you love yourself, once again, he shares with us three very practical ways of doing that. First of all, love her by protecting her, by protecting her. No one ever yet hated his own flesh. No one ever yet despised his own flesh. He takes care of it by protecting it, by protecting it. So, men, what that means is we stand between our wives and danger or harm. And by the way, going back to this idea of uh, the cohabitation thing, a man who truly loves a woman will not, will not pressure her to move in with him, will not pressure her into a premarital sexual relationship that could endanger her. He wants to protect her from any danger, protect her from harm that might come her way. Love her by protecting her. Love her by enriching her, enriching her. This is what Paul is talking about when he says here in verse uh, 29, no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, nourishes it. Provide what you can for the emotional and the spiritual and the mental and the social health of your wife. Nourish her well-being and then love her by cherishing her. 
No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. The idea of cherishing is, uh, is the idea of keeping fondly in mind and treasuring something. You see that. Uh, you, 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 see, you see in your wife worth and value, and you look for it, and you treasure it. And then you express to her what you value. You express to her how valuable she is to you. This is where, this is where some of the romance comes into things, isn't it? You, you exalt her. You don't demean her. There was a, an experience I had uh, my sophomore year of college. I had gone down south, South Carolina, and I was serving in a church uh, out in a rural area of South Carolina. And um, so, you know, here I'm a kid, um, what, 19 years old, I guess it was, and I'm, you know, working with the young people. And, and one of the um, families in the church invited me and a guy who was working with me to dinner for uh, after church on Sunday. So, okay, great. So we went there for dinner, and um, I, so, something struck me that I thought was extremely odd and not very, not very gracious or kind. The, 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 the meal was set, the table was set, the food's brought out, and then um, the wife says, okay, everybody come to the table. And uh, I looked at the table, and there were... Uh, six places set at the table, and there were seven of us to eat. And I just kind of observed this, and I, you know, looking around and wondering what, what's going on, you know. And then uh, the husband led in prayer, gave thanks for the food, and then uh, said, okay, and the wife said, okay, everybody have a seat. And everybody else just sat down at a seat and I'm getting ready to sit down, and I'm noticing there's no place for the wife to sit. Where is she going to sit? And I, and I thought, well, maybe it's just because the table was too crowded. So I said to her, here, you sit here. And she said, no, 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 no. I'll eat in the kitchen. Said, what? I said, no, 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 you, you sit here. I can eat out there. She said, no, 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 no. This is our house. This is the way we do things here. And I thought, hey, that's weird. I, I, I realized that may be a cultural thing and it may be a common thing in some places, in some areas down south. But to me, it communicates something. To me, it communicates a demeaning thing. I, I may not mean that whatsoever to, to, in that culture. I, I'm sure to them it means that, you know, the wife is just expressing servitude and, and, and a servant spirit, and that's fine, a great heart. But here's what I want to get at, men. You do the serving of her. You let her sit down. You honor her. Now, this is just a thing I do, and it, it, it's meaningless if you don't do it, but one of the things I do to kind of communicate that at our table, especially with the little guy sitting there most of the time, is um, I don't take anything and put it on my plate until after, after Chris does, after my wife does. I let her get served first, 
And then, and usually, usually, um, Melissa gets served and Nico gets served and then I'll, and then I'll take food. Now, why do I do that? One of the reasons I do that is I want to communicate the worth and the value. You don't have to do that. I'm just saying that's one, it's just a very simple thing, a very practical thing to do. The key is do it, do it, cherish it. Nature tells you to do that. As you cherish your own body, cherish her. Cherish her. Finally, verses 30 to 32, very quickly. Marriage, marriage, in quotation marks, provides the basis for the fulfilling of your relationship. Now, what do I mean by that? Verse 32, verses 30 to 32. It says, we are members of his body, speaking of Christ's body, the church, and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, you recognize verse 31 as a marriage verse. And then verse 32, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. All right. Marriage, marriage pictures Christ and the church. This is the idea of verse 30 and 32. Paul says, I'm speaking a mystery here concerning Christ and the church. We are members of the body of Christ. We are members of his flesh. We are members, we are, we are of his bones, of his flesh and his bones. And the point, that, the point that Paul is making here about the church, or the union between Christ and the church, is that it's a union that cannot be undone. A true Christian, a true follower of Jesus, is part of Christ's body and cannot be excised from it can't be cut off from it. There's not a finger on the body of Christ that isn't going to be there. No. It's a union that cannot be undone. And that's the idea that God has for marriage expressed in verse 31. For this cause, and, he ex and this is a quotation from Genesis 2, right? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. The idea of marriage is it's to be an indissoluble union. And the point of all this in verses 30 to 32 is that because by virtue of the marriage union, you and your wife are one, you need to love her. You need to love her as a very extension of yourself. This is what verse 33 says to summarize. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. Now this whole passage, verses uh, 22 through 33, this whole passage is a passage on marital submission. And it, it addresses two fundamental desires that most married couples have. Husbands desire that their wives respect them and follow their leadership. Wives desire to be loved like this. And the relationship between the two is very well expressed, I think, in the traditional charge to a bride and groom on their wedding day. And I use it in the weddings that I do. And here's one of the things that is said. Surely God's purpose is that you husbands conduct yourself in such a way that makes it easy for your wife to respect you 
And you wives, so conduct yourself in such a way that your husband will find it easy to love you. But men, regardless of whether or not she does, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Let's pray. Father, we're called to be like Jesus. This is a challenging calling. Our own sinful self gets in the way. Father, I pray that by your grace, you would enable us and encourage us as men to be the kind of Christian men that exhibit Christ's likeness in our relationships to our relationship to our wives and our attitudes toward them and toward women in general. Give us this grace, we pray, to be like Jesus. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.